Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. People are taking up the offer, and you don't want to miss out. Today, I am recommending The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the American Revolution, and the Fate of the Empire by Andrew Jackson O'Shaughnessy. This is a collective biography of ten key British leaders from the American Revolutionary War, people like King George III, William Howe, and Charles Cornwallis. Guys, this book rocks. I have listened to it twice. It is compelling, fascinating, and offers new answers for why Britain lost the war, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1776. The place, America. The war for independence has begun, but some of its greatest unknown soldiers have been forgotten. They worked and suffered, dodged danger, and endured hardship, and sometimes even picked up arms to guarantee their new nation's freedom. These are the women of the American Revolution. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 45, Daughters of Liberty. In keeping with our recent trend of looking at unknown soldiers from well-known wars, today's episode is all about the women of the American Revolution, especially those involved in military operations. They played a much bigger role than you think, including, once in a while, even picking up a gun. But we'll hear all about it, so let's get rolling. Before we get too deep, I want to thank all my listeners once again for continuing to support this podcast. It is a labor of love for me, and I hope that it's a bright spot in your day every time a new episode comes out. Small update, next month's episode will be a special edition episode, much along the lines of the logistics episode I did around the same time last year. I'm going to keep it as a surprise what that episode is. It's going to be pretty awesome. You guys are going to love this one. But then in June... We will finally get rolling with the much-anticipated Paraguayan War series, the War of the Triple Alliance, South America's largest conflict. So get excited for both those things coming up. Other than that, you guys know the drill. I must emphasize that my podcast involves not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Since this is the history of women in wartime, there will be some unavoidable mention today of sexual assault and rape. I will not be graphic, I won't be gross, just be aware that it's happening. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so you can do some further reading if you feel so inclined. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. I got a question for you. Who makes history? Let me elaborate. 
When we talk about history, should our subject be kings and generals and great scientists and great artists, or should it be the vast majority of humanity who were none of those things? Is history a story of the extraordinary individual or the ordinary masses, the few or the many? You might say both, and I think that's the most correct answer. But it is hard to put that into practice, to talk about the extraordinary and the ordinary. One or the other always seems to win. Longtime listeners will know by now that a recurring theme of this podcast is the role of women in military history. There is this concept of warfare as something men do to men, with women either waiting patiently at home for the men to come back, or, less romantically, as victims. In this narrative, women are bystanders, observers, passive, without much agency or choice in the events of the time. They are people that history happens to, not part of history themselves. But if you look past the dominant narrative and take a fresh look at military history, you will find women everywhere. And they are not passive bystanders, they are active participants, making their own history. But when people talk about, for instance, the women of the American Revolution, the focus is usually on a few extraordinary women. Some you may know, some you may have heard of, like Betsy Ross, or Molly Pitcher, or thanks to a certain musical, the Schuyler Sisters. Some you may not know, like Sybil Ludington, or Deborah Sampson, or Friedrika Charlotte von Rietzel. But this isn't just their story. We can't just tell the extraordinary stories, because that leaves out most women of the revolution. It also tends to leave out black women, native women, and the much-forgotten loyalists. So this episode won't just focus on a few incredible women, though we will talk about them too. We have to also look at ordinary courage, ordinary sacrifice, the everyday experience. Because when the war came to their doorsteps, the ordinary women of America found themselves facing extraordinary challenges. How they responded to those challenges, how they changed and transformed their country in the process, far beyond what the extraordinary women could accomplish on their own, that is part of the story. Revolution and war were the crucible, where the ordinary women of America began to forge an extraordinary future. Today's episode will be in my usual four parts, organized less by narrative and more by theme. Part one focuses on women's revolutionary experiences, what gender dynamics were like before 1775, and how those roles began to change as a result of the War for Independence. Part two focuses on women's war experience, those civilian women swept up in a conflict that was far more brutal than is often remembered. Part three focuses on women's military experience, mostly those women we call camp followers, the women of the army. In part four, we'll zero in on a few incredible women, a camp follower, a free black woman, and an American soldier. But we will talk about how they related to the mass of ordinary women, and we will end part four with an examination of how it was the ordinary women that brought about the most lasting change, the forgotten triumphs of the American Revolution. So at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is a sweeping study of women during the Revolution, both the extraordinary and the ordinary, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, check your tires, restring your guitar, do the thing you need to do. So tie back your hair, wipe the sweat from your brow, and carry that bucket of water to the cannons. The British are coming, and you're on the front lines too. Ordinary women like you are about to do extraordinary things. Let's go on campaign. 
before we talk about women in the American Revolution, we need to set the scene. What were women's lives like before the Revolution? I think lots of folks have this impression that gender roles have only really changed in the last century or so. Not true. What society sees as a man's place and a woman's place, what a man is supposed to be and a woman's supposed to be, has varied from century to century and culture to culture. So what was the status of women in colonial America? Huh, not great, but you probably guessed that. The American Revolution came at a time historians often call the Enlightenment, an age when the ideals of reason, logic, and liberty were very popular, especially in Britain's 13 American colonies. But it was widely assumed that the Enlightenment was a male phenomenon. Despite all these amazing new ideas about the equality of man, even the loopiest Enlightenment philosopher did not seriously consider the equality of women. Almost everyone in this time period, male or female, took women's inferiority for granted. They were assumed to possess an almost childlike innocence and lack of logic. One list of feminine qualities includes words like pure, tender, delicate, emotional, modest. Of course, this was a man writing his ideal woman, but he was summing up the general attitude. Women were assumed to have weak wills and weaker minds, unsuited for the stresses of public affairs. Girls received less education than boys, far less, since it was assumed that such effort would be wasted on their frivolous minds. And women were viewed socially and legally in terms of their relationships to men. Now, women were not property. They couldn't be bought or rented or sold, unless they were black, but that didn't count. But under English common law, women were the virtual wards of their husbands. They had no legal identity apart from their husbands, who spoke for them in all civil and property matters. For instance, married women could not sue or be sued. They did not have the legal standing. Widowhood was a woman's only real chance at legal and financial independence, so you have to wonder if there wasn't like some poison tea going around colonial America. You might say, just don't get married. Well, that meant spinsterhood. You still had men in charge of you, just your father or your brother, and spinsterhood was regarded as virtual social death. So yeah, you want to put a ring on it, even if he looks like Quasimodo. If the outside world, the world of business and politics, belonged to men, the inside world belonged to women. Her role was domestic, the steward and protector of the home, the raiser of children and the manager of the household. This could assume dimensions that don't seem obvious at first. For instance, farming, working in the fields, that was something men did. Women weren't supposed to work in the fields, though of course, you know, sometimes they had to, but women were supposed to be doing house stuff. But before you go off on your trad wife, cottage core, Instagram housewife fantasy, let's get something straight. In this age before electricity and refrigerators and Walmarts, being a trad wife was constant, unforgiving toil. Here is how Mary Holyoke, a doctor's wife in colonial America, described a single week of her life. Washed, ironed, scoured pewter, scoured rooms, scoured furniture, brasses, and put up the chintz bed and hung pictures, sewed sweet marrow jam, sewed peas, sewed cauliflower, sewed six-week beans, 
pulled radishes, set out turnips, cut asparagus, killed the pig, weighed 164 pounds, made bread, put beef in pickle, salted pork, put bacon in pickle, made the doctor six cravats marked H, quilted two petticoats, made five shirts. And after all that... Did other things. Keep in mind, she also had to watch her kids this whole time, without so much as a smartphone or a tablet to keep them distracted. And Mary Holyoke lived in town. She was lucky. And colonial women weren't magically immune to getting burnt out just because they lived in the past. They constantly complained of being dog-tired from all their responsibilities. Mary Cooper of Oyster Bay, New York, wrote this in her diary. Full of fretting discontent, dirty and miserable, both yesterday and today. It has been a tiresome day. It is now bedtime, and I have not had one minute's rest. Now, despite all of this, many women did find great satisfaction in their lives. Life was hard, but it was hard for everyone, men included. Despite the gender hierarchy, most women loved and were loved by their husbands and took great joy in raising their children. But that didn't mean they thought everything was perfect. Many women did chafe at their lack of legal rights, the restrictions of society, the mind-numbing toil they endured day to day. Seriously, one of the main vibes I get from women in colonial America is that they were freaking bored. Men worked hard too, but at least they were getting out of the house and doing stuff and talking politics. Women are just in the kitchen day after day. Oh, looks like it's beef stew again. The gender hierarchy was hard to break, not just because men believed it, but because most women believed it too. Women's letters from this time period show a pervasive lack of self-esteem, constantly referring to themselves as foolish or the natural weakness of their sex. You can almost hear Elizabeth Willing Powell sigh when she says, Nature and custom seems to have destined us for the more endearing and private, and man for the more active and busy walks of life. I'm telling you guys all this to establish a baseline. This is what American men and most American women took for granted. This was the status quo. But by the end of this episode, the baseline will shift, and both the extraordinary and ordinary women will cause this shift. It all began when Parliament decided to tax the colonies especially their tea. Every American school kid knows the story of how the revolution began. The British Parliament began to impose taxes on the colonies without their consent. Americans were less than thrilled. Cue the montage. Give me liberty or death. No taxation without representation. Boston Tea Party. Boston Massacre. The Stamp Act. Sons of Liberty. We know the drill. But what often goes unmentioned is the role ordinary American women played in the lead-up to the revolution. And this was directly related to the new British taxes. Throughout the early revolution, 1765 to 1775, before the shooting started, the main form of colonial resistance to what they saw as British tyranny was the boycott. If the British insisted on taxing imported goods like cloth or molasses or tea, then refusing to buy those items was an act of political defiance. And women, as managers of the household, were the primary purchasers and consumers of these goods. The home, which had been the limits of women's worlds, suddenly became a political arena. Refusing to buy British goods was an overtly political act. This turned American women into political actors. Of course, we have to remember, 
Many American women were married to loyalists, those Americans that stayed loyal to King George III and the Crown, and they would come into conflict with their friends and neighbors over this issue. But for Patriot women, taking part in the boycott was exciting. It was something they could choose, something that they could do that would have an impact on the broader world. So it should be no surprise that women were the decisive actors in the boycott movement. Patriotic women renounced luxuries and promoted thrift. Wealthy women might refuse to wear silks, or refuse to ride in carriages imported from Britain, or make an ostentatious show of refusing to buy stamped paper. Like you walk into the store just so you can say no to buying the stamp. Something as simple as glue or linseed oil became a sudden cause for arguments between friends, and making your own substitutes became a mark of pride and patriotism. Benjamin Franklin's sister, Jane Meekham, made a big show of passing out her recipe for homemade soap so that colonial women wouldn't have to buy imported British soap. Stories of women manufacturing their own substitutes for British goods were widespread in American papers before the Revolution. On May 29, 1769, the Boston Evening Post had this to say. The industry and frugality of American ladies must exalt their character in the eyes of the world and serve to show how greatly they are contributing to bring about the political salvation of a whole continent. Some women turned their pens against the British. No one would have taken them seriously if they'd written under their own names because girl, so they had to write anonymously. The 46-year-old Mercy Otis Warren became the most effective satirist in America, basically the John Stewart of the Revolution, though she had to publish all her works anonymously. Her 1773 play The Defeat ruined the reputation of Thomas Hutchinson, the British-appointed governor of Massachusetts. Mercy Otis Warren continued to produce satirical propaganda throughout the Revolutionary War, including 1776's The Blockheads, which mocked the British withdrawal from Boston. Hannah Griffiths, a Philadelphia Quaker, pumped out anonymous poem after poem to criticize the British and celebrate the patriotic cause. In one poem, she criticized men for failing to support the boycotts and claimed that women would have to take up the cause themselves. Since the men from a party or fear of a frown are kept by a sugar plum quietly down, supinely asleep and deprived of their sight, are stripped of their freedom and robbed of their right, if the sons so degenerate the blessings despise, let the daughters of liberty nobly arise. Refusing to drink British tea was an easy way for a woman to identify herself as a true-blooded American patriot. Some women took it further and began to organize publicly, making proclamations of their own. On October 25, 1774, a group of women in Edenton, North Carolina met to protest the continued British taxation of tea. 46-year-old Penelope Barker led 50 other women to sign a statement of protest, vowing to give up tea and all other British products until the taxes were lifted. This protest, often called the Edenton Tea Party, was small but significant. It was the first public display of women's political power in American history. The British mocked the Edenton Tea Party like, oh look, now the women are angry, haha, <laughs> time to get worried, boys. <laughs> British writer Arthur Iredell treated the Edenton petition with scorn, lampooning the idea of women in public affairs at all. He might have said, you're the worst political protest I've ever heard of. And Penelope Barker might have said, ah, but you have heard of me. 
Some of Britain's main exports were textiles, created by the spinning jennings of the very early Industrial Revolution. For women to reject these cheap manufactured items was a huge ask. Yes, making your own cloth is time-consuming, tiring work. They, they couldn't go to Target. We've already established that this, their self-care opportunities were limited at best. But American women began to spin their own cloth. This was called the homespun movement, where women pulled out and dusted off old spinning wheels to relearn the craft of their mothers and grandmothers. It became a mass show of support for the patriotic cause, with communities gathering to compete and see who could spin the most not-British fabric in a day. And at these meetings, they were discussing politics, ideas, issues, in a way that women just hadn't done before. Even younger women could participate. It was exciting, and wearing clothing of your own make became a patriotic symbol just as much as refusing to drink tea. In the words of the 13-year-old Anna Green Winslow, As I am, as we say, a daughter of liberty, I choose to wear as much of our own manufactory as possible. Now, none of this might seem like much, but look at how we've already moved from the baseline. American women were stepping into the public sphere en masse. They were thinking and acting politically, excited at being able to participate in public affairs in a very real and consequential way. And women's work was being valued, seen as important and influential, when it had been degraded and downplayed before. American women were developing a new public consciousness as well as an ideological commitment to the patriot cause. But the anti-British boycotts also reveal another key role that women would play in the revolution. When the shooting started, when the men marched off to fight, women bore a greater share of the economic burden. They were thrust into roles they never expected. Southern women found themselves running plantations. Frontier women found themselves tilling the fields. Urban women were managing businesses. We've already seen that the ladies had tons of stuff to do, and now they would have to do their husband's work too and maintain the same economic output to provide for themselves. The challenge of maintaining their families without their husband's labor drove some women to the brink of starvation or financial ruin. The American economy suffered tremendously throughout the revolution, and women inevitably bore much of this burden. Basic goods grew harder to come by, food prices skyrocketed, and God help you if an army was around, especially the British. They, they ate up all the food and destroyed all the resources in the vicinity. When the economy bottomed out, some women took matters into their own hands. At least 30 food riots took place in small American communities throughout the war, as women just descended on local merchants who were supposedly hoarding precious supplies. Abigail Adams recorded an incident in 1778, when over a hundred women marched down to the warehouse to corral a stingy merchant who was holding out on his coffee. Like, he had all this coffee and these tins and stuff, and he wasn't handing it out, he was selling it like this huge markup, so like a hundred women just glommed onto this guy. They hauled him out of the warehouse bodily, threw him in a cart, then rode off with several trunks of the precious coffee. Granted, that is much nicer than lots of women I know would treat someone who kept them from their coffee. Many women begged their husbands not to go off and fight, believing they could never survive without their men. Desertion from George Washington's Continental Army was a constant problem for this very reason. One soldier's wife pleaded for her husband to come home, 
saying they had no food and they hadn't been able to gather enough wood for the upcoming winter. There's no record on whether this guy did desert and go home to help his wife, but if he did, it'll, he did, it would be really hard to blame him for that, wouldn't it? Hannah Robertson wrote bitterly of her husband's enlistment in the army. I was troubled to think that he should love to be going so much in the war and leave me with helpless children in very poor circumstances. A New Jersey woman felt differently. She wrote to her husband, Remember to do your duty. I would rather hear that you were left a corpse on the field than that you had played the part of a coward. Dang, tell us how you really think. This sort of feminine shaming of men to perform their masculine duty is very common throughout military history. Strong echoes of the Spartan woman's challenge to her man to come back with his shield or on it. One young woman who had to cope with the loss of her husband, his companionship, and his labor was Elizabeth Ross, better known to history as Betsy. In 1773, she had eloped with John Ross, a scandal that caused her expulsion from her Quaker community. John had been an upholsterer's apprentice, and he and Betsy started a business together in Philadelphia. But John died in 1775 while serving with the Philadelphia militia, leaving Betsy Ross to manage their business alone. Betsy Ross is probably the most famous heroine of the American Revolution for allegedly sewing the first U.S. flag, the first stars and stripes, for General George Washington. Unfortunately, guys, I'm going to have to burst the hell out of this bubble. The Betsy Ross flag story can only be dated back to the 1870s, a family myth told by her grandson with very little hard evidence to back it up, no contemporary evidence. It is possible that she was responsible for some design choices, like the decision to use five-pointed stars rather than the six-pointed stars some patriots had proposed, but the story of Betsy Ross as the sole point of origin for the stars and stripes is unfounded. Plus, there were also several other flag makers and upholsters in Philadelphia, including Rebecca Young. Rebecca Young has a much better documented history of flag making. She made lots of flags throughout several decades, so she's a much stronger candidate for sewing the first flag. Either Margaret Manny or Rebecca Young created the Grand Union flag, America's first national flag in December 1775. The Grand Union flag still had the red and white stripes, but it had the Union Jack on its field instead of the white stars in the blue field that we know today. This was the flag hoisted by John Paul Jones on his first voyage against the British, and probably the flag that first flew over George Washington's army outside Boston. But ain't nobody talk about the Rebecca Young flag, mainly because it's got the King's flag still up there in the corner. Not a great look. But even if Betsy Ross didn't do extraordinary things for the Patriot cause, the ordinary things she did were far more important. Betsy Ross's upholstery business worked throughout the war to make tents and blankets for Washington's army, to repair and mend uniforms, and even they even made paper cartridges for ammunition. She was one among many women who alone, without their men, kept the American economy running, kept the armies fed and clothed and supplied throughout the conflict. Betsy Ross's ordinary everyday effort did far more for the American cause than her legendary effort ever would have done. And Betsy Ross's example really drives home how critical women were to the war effort, not as extraordinary heroines, but as ordinary heroines, with their husbands and brothers and sons off to join the army, or dead, 
or disabled, or imprisoned by the British. America's women bore the main burden of the war effort through eight long and often ruinous years of conflict. Even very early in the war, during the clashes around Boston at Lexington and Concord, one traveler observed the women of Massachusetts getting to work. At every house, women and children making cartridges, running bullets, making wallets, baking biscuit, crying and bemoaning, and at the same time animating their husbands and sons to fight for their liberties, though not knowing whether they should ever see them again. Even very late in the war, women were coming up with new ways to contribute. In 1780, the ladies of Philadelphia heard that George Washington's army was in desperate straits, and they took action. Prominent socialite Esther de Burt Reed founded and organized what became the Ladies' Association, a woman's political organization, and they went door to door hitting up Philly's wealthy citizens to raise cash for Washington's army. This was a remarkable display of overt public action by women, and the Ladies' Association got some blowback from the more conservative folks for the brazenness of their actions. What, the, the good women of Philadelphia society are marching through the street with an, basically alms for the poor, <laughs> but they eventually raised more than $300,000, an enormous sum by the standards of the day. Reed wanted to give the money directly to the soldiers as like a show of appreciation for their sacrifice, but General Washington was like, late ma'am, don't do that. He was worried that they would blow any loose pocket change they got on booze. Reed was upset that George Washington didn't respect her wishes for the money, but I know soldiers, and that means I gotta side with George on this one. The boys would have been blotto in a matter of hours. Washington recommended that the money be used to buy clothing instead, and over 2,200 new shirts went to the scantily clad soldiers of the Continental Army. Esther Reed didn't live to see her triumph. She died from disease at a relatively young age 34. But other women across the colonies followed her example to organize charity efforts for Washington's army and her work and writings marked her out as a new kind of confident, self-assured, patriotic woman, what many were calling a daughter of liberty. Women's work, so long denigrated and downplayed, became a vital component for the revolutionary cause. It was the underpinning of the economy. And in the process, they learned that they could survive. They could, because they had to. As one woman put it, necessity taught them. And as their own labor became more and more important to the American cause, they stopped calling it my husband's farm, my husband's business, my husband's house. It was now our farm, our business, our house. There was a sense that when this was all over, things would be a little different. America's women were gaining something they had not had before the revolution began. Self-confidence. They would need all the self-confidence they could get. Because the war was coming to their doorstep. A war whose brutality is obscured by the romantic visions of America's past. American women of all loyalties and all races would find themselves in the line of fire as all 13 colonies came under the shadow of war.
The American Revolution was a much more brutal conflict than many people realize. Every one of the 13 colonies was invaded, every major American city was occupied for some amount of time, and every farm and village lived under the threat of physical violence. There was no safe haven, no escape from the conflict. And in many parts of the country, especially the South, it was a civil war. Patriot and Loyalist militias engaged in cycles of atrocity, where yesterday's crime justified tomorrow's payback. Americans had believed that the woman's place was in the home, but after 1775, the war was in your home. There was nowhere to hide. It was another of those wonderful situations where you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. But not every American woman had the same wartime experience. The severity of the war varied from region to region, with New York and South Carolina, for instance, having a much rougher time than Maryland or Connecticut. And your experience would also be different if you were a loyalist, or black, or an American Indian woman. One thing was universal, the sudden introduction of physical violence into previously peaceful communities. Now, lots of American women had lived out in the frontier where there were constant wars, small wars, between white settlers and American Indians. They were at least passingly familiar with violence. But for women who would live their lives in a New York apartment or a Virginia plantation, the shock of war was a terrifying experience. In January 1776, British warships bombarded Norfolk, Virginia, destroying almost the whole town and killing an unknown number of civilians. A Virginia teenager named Betsy Ambler suddenly realized that war was upon them. War in itself, however distant, is indeed terrible. But when brought to our very doors, when those that we love most are personally engaged in it, when our friends and neighbors are exposed to its ravages, the reflection is overwhelming. Now, as I've said before, it is all too easy to see women only as victims of war, something that war happened to and not as active participants. A huge part of this episode revolves around showing that women weren't just victims, but sometimes they were victims. There are times in history when armies have been well-behaved, respected civilians, and obeyed the accepted laws of war. There are times, but they're rare, and the revolution wasn't one of them. The departure of so many men to join the war effort left women to the mercy of foreign occupiers. Armies in this period had a tendency to live off the land, which in practice meant taking your food, your livestock, your clothes, and sometimes your house. The British army was notorious for stripping the countryside bare wherever it went, often destroying what they couldn't carry to deny it to the rebels. That much was pragmatic, that's just war. But the Redcoats didn't stop there. Looting, just straight up theft, was very common, and lots of times the, Br the British destroyed stuff just to be jerks, like for no good reason other than cruelty. One South Carolina woman, Eliza Wilkinson, described the looting of her home in 1780. We have been humbled to the dust, again plundered, worse than ever plundered. Our very doors and window shutters were taken from the home, furniture demolished, goods carried off, beds ripped up, stock of every kind driven away. In short, distresses of every nature attended us. The wanton destruction of property by British soldiers was common enough, but the Redcoats also liked to use American houses as quarters for their soldiers. That's the reason the Third Amendment to the Constitution exists, don't put soldiers in my house. 
women were often forced into positions of terrifying vulnerability. One New Jersey woman remembered having the clothes torn from her body because a soldier just wanted them. And when she protested, a British soldier threatened her with impalement by his bayonet. Some women fled rather than face the enemy armies, but this had its own dangers. The living conditions in refugee camps were appalling, and they were breeding grounds for disease. You could flee into the wilderness and try to hang out there, but that might be the worst of all. When General John Burgoyne's British army invaded upstate New York in 1777, the poet Anne Elizabeth Bleeker fled into the woods with her two daughters, one four years old, the other newborn. She wasn't hurt by the British, but hunger and exposure killed her baby before the Redcoats even saw them. Most of the time, it was just better to stand by your house and face whatever came your way. Whatever came your way might be worse than looting. One famous example also comes from Burgoyne's campaign. A young woman named Jane McRae was kidnapped, murdered, and scalped by several Wyandotte Indians who were serving with Burgoyne's army. Jane McRae's murder became a rallying cry for American propaganda throughout 1777. Violent death was a very real threat for American women on the home front. You, you weren't safe. In 1781, a trio of very famous sisters came right into the path of physical violence. A group of loyalists broke into a house in Albany, New York, looking for the American general Philip Schuyler. Philip's daughter Eliza had recently married the handsome young American staff officer Alexander Hamilton. The Schuyler sisters hid upstairs as the loyalists and allied Indians rampaged through their home, but then they realized that their baby sister Catherine was still down there. Like, oops, we forgot something. Eliza and Angelica were both pregnant at the time, so Peggy Schuyler raced downstairs, grabbed her baby sister, dodged a thrown tomahawk, and escaped. And she was repaid for her ballsy courage by getting like three lines in the musical Hamilton. But there was one particularly horrifying bit of violence that women faced during the revolution, and that was rape. Many women definitely suffered rape during the war. It seems to have been at its worst during the British occupation of New Jersey from 1776 to 1777, where it assumed epidemic proportions. There are accounts of this. The Continental Congress collected eyewitness statements in great detail, and I'm not going to repeat them. You can look into my sources if you want to see them. British officers didn't try too hard to stop this. They figured, uh, boys will be boys, basically. This is what one British officer, Lord Ralden, said about the epidemic of rape in British-occupied territory. The fair nymphs are in wonderful tribulation. A girl cannot step into the bushes to pluck a rose without running the most imminent risk of being ravished. We have the most entertaining courts martial every day. Yeah, like you see, they didn't give a crap. Don't worry, guys. Lord Ralden paid for his cruelty and callousness with a long and successful career in the British Empire. Women were often too ashamed to come forward and tell their stories, probably because of the very valid fear of being blamed or ostracized for their own rape. It happened then, it happens today. One of the many ugly sides of the Revolutionary War that is still all too common. Compared to the British, George Washington's Continental Army was normally very well behaved. Washington was a stern disciplinarian. He didn't even want his soldiers stealing a chicken. He brought the hammer down on any of his boys caught looting, pillaging, or even harassing the local population. Basically like, hey bub, these are your freaking people. What are you doing stealing from them? 
But Washington couldn't be everywhere, and the Continental Army wasn't the only American force out there. Some women were victimized by their own countrymen just as badly as by the British. This was much more likely if they were Loyalists. In most American histories of the Revolution, the Loyalists are usually cast as traitors and villains. And as, But as much as I'm glad America won, I sympathize with the Loyalists. Even if you think they were on the wrong side, it's hard to say they deserved what happened to them. Especially the women, because they didn't have a choice in any of this. They were victims of their husbands' choices. When the Patriot mob came after the men who dared to side with King George, the wives and daughters often paid the price. Many Loyalist women had their houses ransacked and confiscated, their property destroyed, their very clothes stripped from their bodies, just like Patriot women often faced at the hands of the British. In Albany, New York, one Loyalist woman saw her home torn down before she and her daughter were both publicly beaten and driven out of town. And unlike Patriot women, Loyalist women were being victimized by their neighbors, their community, in many cases former friends. Many of them were forced to flee to British-held territory, often a grueling trek of hundreds of miles with children in tow. Sarah Sherwood, the wife of Loyalist officer Justice Sherwood, had to flee New York while seven months pregnant, carrying her infant daughter and pulling her toddler by the hand all the way to Canada. Anne Peters had to escort her seven children to British lines in the dead of winter. A good chunk of Canada, like most of a lot of Canadian people, are descended from these Loyalist women who risked everything to bring their families to safety and start over in a foreign land. It's hard not to feel for them, whatever your feelings on the American Revolution. There were other women with mixed feelings about the American Revolution. After all, in 1775, slavery was legal in all 13 colonies, even the North. The British saw this as a weapon to use against the Americans. Not out of anti any anti-slavery feeling, let's not kid ourselves. The British kept their slaves for decades after the Revolution. Note, this was a wartime strategy to hurt the American cause. Most famously, in 1775, the British governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, proclaimed freedom to any slave who left their masters to join the British. Many slaves took the British up on their offer, and at least a third of these refugees were women. Black women were generally less likely to flee slavery than black men, because they usually had families that depended on them, like young children or elderly relatives who might not be able to make the journey. Black women in the Revolution waver between the hopeful danger of freedom and the security of slavery. Not an easy choice when people depend on you. After all, joining the British was no guarantee that bad things weren't going to happen. They would just be different bad things. Over a third of the black women who answered Lord Dunmore's call died from the diseases rampant in his poorly sanitized camp. But black women took their chances for freedom throughout the Revolution. When Cornwallis's army invaded Virginia in 1781, over 4,000 escaping slaves followed the Redcoats. Two of them were Diana and Hannah, an elderly woman and her blind daughter from the Lenning Plantation. They managed to get on a British ship after the surrender at Yorktown and eventually settled in Canada. Many of these escaping slaves, along with Lord Dunmore's survivors and other refugees, managed to escape and settle in British Canada or British West Indies or British West Africa. Thousands of black women gained their freedom by making a choice and taking their chances with King George's men. 
But many black women also served the American cause. Some of them saw the value in the principles of freedom and liberty, even if those principles didn't always get put into practice. We'll get to see a few of these women in part four. Some black women even showed astonishing and honestly undeserved loyalty to their owners. One was an enslaved woman from Georgia known to history only as Mammy Kate. Kate discovered that her master, Stephen Hurd, had been captured and imprisoned in the British fort at Augusta, Georgia. Mammy Kate infiltrated the British camp, served as a laundress, and got in good with the guards until she had free access to the cells. One night, just as she did every night, Mammy Kate walked into the prison with her laundry basket on her head. Just as she did every night, she walked out, right past the guards, this time with her master Stephen concealed inside the basket. A few miles outside the camp, she set him loose, and they fled to rejoin the Patriots. Stephen Hurd later became governor of Georgia, and give him credit, he awarded Kate her freedom and even gifted her land with a house. Kate went on to marry, have nine children, and die a free black woman. Guess who else wasn't thrilled about the American Revolution? That's right, the American Indians. Now, American Indian peoples made up a wide range of cultures and practices that were often as different from each other as they were different from the white settlers. But in some of these cultures, gender roles were radically different from European standards. For one thing, unlike in the model American society, women worked in the fields alongside men explicitly. Working in the fields was a woman's job. The fact that this scandalized white people, like, don't these women know they're supposed to be hanging up live, laugh, love signs over the mantelpieces? Yeah, that goes to show you that gender roles are often based on nothing. <laughs> white people were stunned not just by the women working in the fields, but by the political power that women could wield among the American Indian nations. The clan mothers of the Iroquois elected their chiefs. Cherokee women could serve as war chiefs, and some nations even had women warriors. To white observers, this level of influence seemed downright uncivilized, the opposite of a well-ordered society. One Oneida chief made it clear that women had a strong voice in his tribe's councils. It was always the custom for women to be present at councils, being of much estimation among us, in that we proceed from them, and they provide our warriors with provisions when they go abroad. See, someone gets it. One woman who straddled both worlds was Molly Brandt, a Mohawk who had married a British official named William Johnston. Along with her brother Joseph Brandt, Molly Brandt was one of the Iroquois Confederacy's main political leaders. Joseph handled the military side of things, while Molly handled the diplomacy and internal politics. Her leadership and political skill kept the Iroquois unified in support of King George throughout the conflict. She was so influential that one British officer said, One word from Molly Brandt is more taken notice of than a thousand from the white man. But the Iroquois were defeated in their alliance with the British, and Molly's people were eventually forced to seek shelter in Canada. Lots of people going to Canada. The Cherokee had Nanyehi, known to whites as Nancy Ward. She had led her fellow tribesmen to victory in a pitched battle with the Muscogee when she was 18 years old. Nancy Ward received the title of Gigua, or Beloved Woman, which gave her a seat on the Cherokee Council and a position of authority within the nation. In this role, she functioned as a voice for peaceful relations with the colonists. 
Nancy Ward was the lead negotiator in the 1781 peace treaty with the Americans, though she was surprised to learn that American women didn't have a voice in the treaty. She was like, bruh, where are all your women? The women have to agree to the treaty, that's how it works. We always ask our nation's women to ratify our treaties. Of course, white people looked at her like she was a space alien. But women's political power in the American Indian nations would wane as their traditions gave way to accommodation with white ways. Native American women would have to wait centuries to regain the influence they had wielded in the days of the American Revolution. So yeah, guys, whether they were white or black, patriot or loyalist, European or Native American, women had it freaking rough during the Revolutionary War. The economic problems were bad enough, but when war came to their doorstep, stuff got brutal. This was the ordinary experience. That makes it even more amazing, downright extraordinary, that women carried on at all, that they continued to persevere and keep the home fires burning with the wolf at the door. And some women did things that were even more incredible, because it seems like every county in the old 13 colonies has a story of a local heroine of the American Revolution. Now, these stories come with a few, you know, caveats, some asterisks up here next to these stories. First, they are not exhaustive, there are a bunch of stories I picked a few to represent. Second, lots of them are apocryphal. They come from local or family histories. The hard evidence for these things happening is often scanty, so take them with a grain of salt. And third, they do not represent the average experience. These are the extraordinary stories, not the ordinary stories. But taken together as a whole, they reveal something a widening of women's roles and women's self-confidence in the turmoil of the revolution. The idea that women could be patriotic, could be heroic, could be confident and decisive and act on their own initiative, and be praised for it, was something new and remarkable in colonial America. One common theme that emerges from these stories is women as messengers. When a critical dispatch had to get through British lines to save an American unit from ambush or something, Sometimes a woman could draw less attention than a man. Seriously, there are tons of these stories. In 1775, an exhausted courier came riding up to the Connecticut home of 22-year-old Deborah Champion. He had letters that needed to get to General Washington, but he didn't know the way and he was too exhausted to continue. So Deborah rode north before light the next morning, threading through British patrols and splashing through mud and rain across New England. At one point, she was stopped and nearly apprehended by a British sentry, but she pretended to be an old woman traveling to see a sick friend, and he let her pass. Deborah made it to Washington's camp and placed the message directly in the general's hands. As she told a friend, He was pleased to compliment me most highly as to what he was pleased to call the courage I had displayed and my patriotism. On April 26, 1777, the British were preparing to conduct a raid on the supply depot at Danbury, Connecticut, in the Hudson River Valley. News of the attack was sent to all the local militia commanders. Late that night, word came to the doorstep of Militia Colonel Henry Ludington in Putnam County, New York. Time was of the essence. The militia needed to be rallied, but Colonel Ludington had to stay home and organize the men as they arrived. The only one able to ride the dark trails of Putnam County and call out the militia was Colonel Ludington's daughter, Sybil, a 16-year-old auburn-haired tomboy who knew how to ride. 
According to local legend, Sybil Ludington rode 40 miles that night, a streak of lightning down dark trails and bandit-infested woods, knocking on doors, raising the alarm, calling the militia out to fight. Sybil Ludington's midnight ride rallied 400 men to her father's banner, and they harassed the British all the way back to New York City. The midnight ride of Sybil Ludington, much like the midnight ride of Paul Revere, warned the militia that the British were coming, but she rode about four times farther than he did, alerted ten times as many people, and unlike Paul Revere, the British didn't catch her. Multiple statues in New York's Hudson Valley honor Sybil Ludington today. If women were effective messengers because of assumptions about their gender, they were even better spies. After all, with so many British soldiers going in and out of their houses, eating dinner and drinking all their wine and talking the night away, lots of women were in a good position to eavesdrop, pick up a little gossip, and maybe send it over General Washington's way. In December 1777, the British Army under General William Howe had occupied Philadelphia. Howe's headquarters was right across the street from the home of Irish patriot Lydia Dara. The British confiscated Lydia's home to use as a meeting house for General Howe's staff. On the night of December 2nd, Lydia pretended to be asleep as the British planned a surprise attack on George Washington's camp at White Marsh. Within a few days, Lydia had managed to get a pass out of Philadelphia, allegedly to go buy some flour from the mill. She got her flour, and oh, would you look at that, she also ran into one of General Washington's officers, and wouldn't he like to hear some interesting gossip from a chatty old Irish lady? She wasn't that old, she was like in her, in her 40s. When Howe's army marched out for their attack a few days later, they found Washington's army ready and waiting. The British turned and went back the way they had come, in one British officer's words, like a parcel of fools. Washington knew the importance of good intelligence. By the middle of the war, he had a whole spy network operating out of British-controlled New York City. The Culper spy ring is semi-famous these days due to the AMC show Turn Washington Spies. Multiple women in New York and New Jersey are believed to have been part of the Culper spy ring, which was so secret that it's basically still classified. Most of its members took their knowledge of the network to their graves. Historians have struggled to find out who a lot of these people even were. One woman is only known as Agent 355. The fact that there are multiple cult-perspiring women who may have been Agent 355 shows how extensive the network was. The top candidates are Sarah Townsend, who hosted multiple British officers in her house and passed information to the Continental Army, or Anna Strong, who sent signals to fellow agents by hanging petticoats and handkerchiefs in a certain sequence on her clotheslines. The women of the Culper spy ring helped uncover Benedict Arnold's plan to betray the fortress of West Point to the British, an action that may have changed the course of the Revolutionary War if it had succeeded. As the war expanded into the southern colonies, especially the Carolinas, the fighting became uglier, more personal, more of a civil war. Women in this part of the country found themselves at the sharp end of guerrilla warfare, constant partisan raids and underground activity. Martha Bratton was married to an American guerrilla leader, Colonel William Bratton, in South Carolina. He had a large amount of gunpowder concealed beneath the floorboards of their house for the guerrillas to use for their muskets and for bombs. When the British learned of the cash, they sent troops to confiscate it. With her husband gone and with no time to move the ammunition, 
Martha Bratton lit a match and blew up her own house, literally seconds before the Redcoats arrived on the scene. When they arrested Martha and questioned her, they asked her what man had done this treasonous act, ignoring the, like, you know, smoking eyebrows and crispy hair on her head. Martha said, It was I who did it. Let the consequences be what they will. I glory in having prevented the mischief contemplated by the cruel enemies of my country. <laughs> At least that's what she's supposed to have said. That sounds more like what she later wished she'd said. Like, you're in the shower replaying the argument and you're like, Dang, that would have been really cool if I'd thought of it at the time. Like, you aren't thinking of great one-liners when you just blew yourself up. Martha wasn't the only woman willing to destroy her home to toss out the invaders. The British seized the South Carolina home of Rebecca Mott and turned it into a fortress, with trenches and palisades and everything around it. When the Americans surrounded the house, they asked Rebecca for permission to set it on fire to drive the British out. She not only gave them permission, she's like, yeah, burn that crap. She gave them a bow and a bundle of arrows to do it with, which I guess she just had, like, laying around. Rebecca watched as her home went up in flames, presumably shotgunning the twisted tea and throwing up devil horns. Woo! Burn it down! Anyway, all of these women had their lives turned upside down by war. They not only rose to the occasion... They shattered gender roles and expectations in a way that never would have been acceptable before 1775. By taking decisive action, by displaying courage and resilience and patriotism, they made a strong case that women were not the weak, passive, almost childlike creatures of the pre-war imagination. Something fundamental was changing. It was subtle, but it was there. But when it came to staring danger in the face, even these women pale in comparison to another group of Daughters of Liberty. These were the shadow soldiers of the Revolution, the women who followed and fought with the armies. These were the camp followers. So far, we've been talking about the women who were part of the fighting by accident, because the front lines came to them. But there was a different category. Women who went to the front lines. Both the British Army and the American Army had large numbers of women alongside them, whether they were wives or girlfriends or prostitutes or just out-and-out hangers-on. And this was normal in this time period. Every Western army of the 18th century had this large train of women that traveled with the army. They were known as camp followers. And long-time listeners of this podcast will know, I did a whole freaking episode about camp followers, episode 25, back in March of last year. So this is partially a slight rehash of that episode, but much more focused on the American Revolution. So who were these women? Why did they end up with the army? What did they do? And how did they contribute to the revolution? First off, let's be clear. There were lots of these ladies. No one is exactly sure how many, but some estimates have thousands of women serving with both the British and American armies. They were not in uniform. Well, okay, there were a couple who we'll get to. But the vast, vast majority were just women who marched and camped with the army. 
why would they do this? Well, well, for one thing, I just finished telling you how dangerous it could be for a woman on her own in the middle of this war, or in general, anywhere. And for women who were refugees or had no other place to go, sometimes tagging along with the army was the best bet. Lots of the women were soldiers' wives. Thousands of army wives came overseas with the Redcoats and the German mercenaries. They were on the support of the British Army. They were on the regimental rosters, and some even received wages for cooking, cleaning, carrying gear, and nursing the soldiers when they were sick or wounded. It's estimated that at least 5,000 women served with the British armies in America at any given time. There were also Loyalist regiments with the British Army, so there were American wives of these Loyalist Americans fighting with the British. When John Burgoyne's British Army surrendered after the Battle of Saratoga, 8,000 men and 2,000 women marched into American captivity. Like, guys, this army is 20% women and has just spent months fighting its way into upstate New York. An American woman described the sight of these surrendered British camp followers after the Battle of Saratoga. I never had the least idea that creation produced such a sordid set of creatures and human figure. Great numbers of women who seemed to be the beast of burden, having a bushel basket on their back by which they were bent double, bare feet clothed in dirty rags, such effluvia filled the air. This is really just the aftermath of a day-long farmer's market, but I digress. The British had strict quotas for how many army wives could serve on the ration strength. Like, they took X number of women per regiment when they deployed from Britain, and the unlucky ones just had to kick rocks. But when it came to the Continental Army, there were more women. George Washington realized that he couldn't enforce the same quotas the British did. For one thing, desertion was a major problem. All those women back home begging their husbands to come protect them didn't help. If the soldiers had their wives with them, it might keep them from deserting and encourage morale. The second big reason Washington allowed the women to stick around was the same reason every army of this period did so. Because they were necessary. Women were part of what some historians call the campaign community, the broader ecosystem of the army. In the cooking, cleaning, mending, carrying, fixing, foraging, and nursing they did was vital to the Continental Army. Every army in this period has all these women because they're a vital support service. Just like women's work was vital to the economic survival of the revolution, women's work was vital to the survival of George Washington's army. Granted, the camp followers didn't always have a great reputation. For one thing, they tended to slow the army down. Camp followers especially liked to ride on the army supply wagons, which was not good for the suspension. Washington complained, The multitude of women in particular, especially those who are pregnant or have children, are a clog on every movement. So Washington, using the British Army as his example, tried to impose military regulations on the camp followers. This didn't always work. The Continental Army had constant problems with discipline throughout the war, and the women were often just as bad as the men. They might get into or cause fights, sell alcohol to the soldiers, argue with the officers and sergeants, or steal from the locals and each other. There are records of women being severely punished, even with lashings, for violating army discipline. Mary Johnson was given 100 lashes for trying to convince American soldiers to desert. There was one category of women who caused not just trouble but health problems, and those were prostitutes or sex workers. 
Folks call prostitution one of the oldest professions, but I think it's just the good old free market at work. Where there's a buyer, there will be a supplier. There was a district of New York City during both the American and British occupations that was notorious for being the local prostitute hangout. Since the spot was owned by the Trinity Church, it had the irreverent nickname Holy Ground. Apparently it was a freaking nasty place, but soldiers still went there every now and then, and sometimes they brought back a gift. Because prostitutes weren't just considered contrary to good order and discipline, they also spread STDs, which could ruin a unit. There was such a fear of STDs that some units literally had their women undergo routine inspections. In July 1777, the commander of a Delaware regiment gave this order. That the women belonging to the regiment be paraded tomorrow morning and to undergo an inspection from the surgeon of the regiment. The colonel reassured his unit that married women didn't have to be inspected to preserve their modesty, but their husbands did have to be inspected. Also note the terminology here, women belonging to the regiment. Like they aren't just around, they're belonging to the regiment. A few days after he gave that order, an undisclosed number of women were kicked out of camp for allegedly giving the men venereal disease. Lots of soldiers had low opinions of the camp followers. One American officer said this, which I think is uncalled for. They are the ugliest in the world to be collected. The furies who inhabit the infernal regions can never be painted half so hideous as these women. Oof, sounds like someone got turned down. But no, this was how a lot of people tended to see the camp followers. They drank, they swore, they did all this manly work and behaved in such a manly fashion that it seemed like they'd cast aside any pretensions to the regular feminine style. But most soldiers admired the courage and stamina of the army's women, and they appreciated their work. Cleaning and washing were especially important since, number one, hygiene prevented disease, and number two, washing clothes was extremely time-consuming in the old days. Sometimes just a handful of women could be tasked with the laundry of the whole regiment. There was a time very early in the war when a couple of French officers were starting to show up to the American army to get a feel for things, and one of the French visitors sees a unit that was exceptionally dirty and had no women around. So he looks at the other Americans like, hey, don't they know they're supposed to have camp women? That's, like, that's what we do in France. Where are all your women? Women also served as an unofficial nursing corps. This was especially important in times of extreme hardship like Valley Forge, or just after a major battle like Monmouth or Yorktown. Washington recruited more nurses wherever he could find them and issued orders regulating their conduct and pay. But of course, serving with the army put women into harm's way. Battlefield scavenging was a common practice for camp followers, and sometimes they got a little bit too eager. A Connecticut soldier named Joseph Collins saw women scooting around the battlefield, trying to strip the dead before the shooting even stopped. I saw one woman, while thus employed, struck by a cannonball and literally dashed to pieces. For the most part, the women of the army proved brave and selfless, even in the teeth of danger. Soldiers at the Battle of Brandywine in 1777 remembered how their women dodged enemy fire to fill the army's canteens from the river. Sarah Osborne organized a group of camp followers to cook and carry food to the men in the trenches during the Siege of Yorktown, literally dodging cannonballs half the time and earning her personal acclaim from General Washington. Of course, not all camp followers had the same experience. For one thing, many in both the British and American armies were black. 
In the American armies, they were usually the enslaved servants of Southern officers, though they usually performed the same tasks as their white counterparts. There were undoubtedly free black women, with the not insignificant number of black men, black soldiers, in the Continental Army. The British, too, had a mixture of free and enslaved women in their armies. Camp followers were not all white, and not all free. But if this was the ordinary camp follower experience, there were also the extraordinary camp followers, the generals' wives. They would not have considered themselves camp followers, though this was definitely more of a class distinction, like, lady, you're with the army, you're a camp follower. The highest ranking camp follower who would not have called herself that was none other than Martha Washington herself. Martha spent every single winter of the war with the Continental Army. Even though she was not having a great time freezing her butt off at Valley Forge, she was not young, she regarded it as her duty. Martha's presence boosted morale both for her husband and the men he led. Everyone who met her was impressed with her grace and poise, including the Prussian drill master turned American general Friedrich von Steuben. She reminded him of the Roman matrons of whom I had read so much. I thought that she well deserved to be the companion and friend of the greatest man of the age. Martha Washington, with her exquisite southern manners, was also the army's de facto hostess. She organized winter's balls that were the social events of the season in America, shedding a little light into the gloomy winters of the War for Independence. The balls were a social magnet for all the eligible bachelors and bachelorettes of the Patriot cause, including Washington's young staff officer, a human tornado of horniness named Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton famously met his wife Elizabeth Schuyler at one of Martha's balls in 1780 at Morristown. Martha's only contender for the heart of the army was the young, beautiful Catherine Green, wife of General Nathaniel Green. Katie Green was rather younger than her husband. They got married when he was 30 and she was 18. But despite his attempts to keep her home in Rhode Island, Katie somehow kept winding up in camp, treating the war like it was prom and she was the queen. Katie was notorious for flirting with anyone and everyone. Though she was faithful to Nathaniel, she just liked messing with people. At one of Martha's famous parties in 1779, Katie danced for three hours with none other than General Washington, making everyone in the room jealous. Except for Martha, who never worried about her husband. Well, okay. Maybe a little. Maybe Martha's nostrils flared a little bit by like hour three. Martha Washington, Katie Green, and Henry Knox's formidable wife Lucy Knox formed the trio of prominent generals' wives. Even if they had it a little better than most generals' wives, they helped to sustain the Continental Army's morale during some of its darkest hours at Valley Forge in 1777 and Morristown in 1780. Contrast this to the British generals' wives, most of whom stayed in England. General Sir William Howe, the main British general in the early war, took advantage of this fact. He had a very well-known mistress named Elizabeth Loring, the wife of American loyalist Joshua Loring. The affair was basically public, like L Elizabeth Loring was Howe's all-but-official campaign wife. But it seems like Joshua Loring didn't mind, because Howe gave him a pretty sweet job in exchange for borrowing his wife for a few years. Is this, um, cuckoldry nepotism? I don't know what to call it. But the Americans got a kick out of it. 
They even had a poem about Sir William Howe and his famous mistress. Sir William he, snug as a flea, lay all the time a-snoring, nor dreamed of harm as he lay warm in bed with Mrs. Loring. So the British generals didn't bring their wives to war, but they weren't the only foreigners who deployed to America's shores. In 1776, Major General Baron Friedrich Reitesel arrived in America, leading 4,000 mercenaries from the German principality of Brunswick-Wolfenbüttel. The Germans were hired to help the British subdue the rebellion, and Baron Reitesel went to war with his wife, one of my favorite women in military history, the absolute champion of camp followers, Friedrika Charlotte Louise von Massau, Baroness Reitesel. Let's do what most historians do and shorten that to Charlotte. Let's tell her story, because this is actually a really fascinating story. Charlotte was more than familiar with the camp follower life. Her father had been a Prussian general, and as a child, she had been a camp follower in, in Frederick the Great's Prussian army during the Seven Years' War. During that war, she attended the wounds of a gallant young colonel named Friedrich Riedesel. They were married within the year. Charlotte was 30 years old by 1776, tall, red-headed, and beautiful, with three daughters all under five years old, including a literal newborn. And when her husband was like, babe, I'm going to America alone, Charlotte said, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. Her attitude was, I followed the army in the last war, why not this one too? Literally weeks after she had given birth to her third daughter, Charlotte was on her way to America to join her husband on his campaigns. She apparently learned English in literally six weeks to prepare for the trip. Granted, I bet it wasn't great English, but it was probably better than my German. Charlotte, and I will remind you, her three daughters, all under the age of five, including one infant, made it to Canada by 1776. The next year, 1777, they were marching with General Riedesel's Brunswickers into a strange land called America. The Germans were part of General John Burgoyne's invasion of upstate New York, which the British hoped would divide the colonies in two and win the war. This campaign, the Saratoga Campaign, would be the turning point of the Revolutionary War because Burgoyne would drop the ball. Charlotte, who as an army brat and army wife knew a little something about military affairs, thought Burgoyne was a moron. She pointed out that even his basic security measures were lacking. Like, local civilian women just walked into and out of the British camp at will, and she's like, those are obviously, like, spies. Look at them. They're writing stuff down. And nobody cared. Later in the campaign, Charlotte literally chewed Burgoyne out to his face for failing his men so badly. By early September, Burgoyne was stranded deep in enemy territory, locked in combat with an American army outside Saratoga, New York, just north of Albany. And Baroness Riedesel was a witness to one of the turning points of history. I was an eyewitness to the whole affair. I could hear everything. I was full of care and anguish and shivered at every shot. Charlotte set up a nursing station in one of the farmhouses and began to care for the wounded coming in fast, streaming in from the battlefield as the fight heated up. She saw the camp followers bring in one young British officer, only 20 years old, and did the best she could to make him comfortable. Despite her best efforts, the young man died before sunrise. Even the generals weren't safe. 
the dead body of Brigadier General Simon Fraser, one of the Highland Frasers that had been so prominent in the Jacobite Wars, was brought in before her very eyes. I sat in the corner of the room, trembling and quaking. The thought that they might bring in my husband in the same manner tormented me incessantly. But General Reed Dezel led his Germans heroically and survived the battle unwounded. As the battle intensified, American artillery began to target the farmhouse. They see a bunch of redcoats going in and out of the farmhouse. They're like, oh, that's a headquarters. So they started lobbing shells into it. Charlotte sheltered her daughters and continued to tend the wounded as cannonballs crashed into the building. She remembered hearing the screams and cries of the, cam of the American camp followers on the other side of the battlefield as they too came under cannon fire. Despite all this, she continued her work. One German soldier remembered. There was Lady Riedesel with her tender infants, amidst the suffering and despairing. She acted then the part of an angel of comfort and help among the sufferers. By her energy, she restored order in that chaos. Finally, General Burgoyne and his troops were forced to surrender, the American victory at Saratoga being the turning point of the Revolutionary War. The Riedesel family marched into captivity. Despite their POW status, they basically joined the social circles of colonial America during their quote-unquote imprisonment. The Riedesels were briefly hosted by American General Philip Schuyler in Albany, New York. So yes, for you Hamilton fans, they met the Schuyler sisters. People just bumping into these ladies all over the place. They were eventually sent to house arrest in Virginia, of all places, where Charlotte made friends with Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson. General Riedesel was eventually exchanged, and he and Charlotte rejoined the British Army in New York in 1779. One story says that Charlotte, known for her lavish Christmas decorations, brought some weird new traditions to America and Canada. A crazy German custom of, like, decorating trees with lights and ribbons to mark the holiday. Oh yeah, I got you guys again. Bet you didn't walk into this episode expecting the origin story of American Christmas trees. The possible origin story. Charlotte gave birth to two more daughters, including one she named America, before the Baron and the Baroness finally went home in 1783. Baroness Frederica Charlotte von Riedesel died in 1808, but not before publishing her journals, which are an invaluable first-hand account of the Saratoga campaign. Like, they're referenced in every book on this campaign because they offer a window into Burgoyne's decision-making, which was really, really bad. The Baroness was clearly freaking awesome, one of my favorite women again in military history. Even though she was relatively privileged compared to most army women, and even though she was on the other side of the Amer from the Americans, her experience shows the trials, the dangers, and the sacrifices that even a European noblewoman had to endure as a camp follower. Think about how hard it must have been for the rest of them. The women of the army clearly did their fair share, and more, in the American War for Independence. To close out this episode, let's meet some of the most incredible women in the story of the American Revolution. Women who more than anyone else deserve the honorific of Daughters of Liberty.
Some women of the American Revolution became legends, whether in their own time or later. Before we close out the episode today, we are going to examine three of them, but not in isolation. Each of these extraordinary women revealed something about ordinary women. It's too easy to focus on the incredible individual and overlook the massive shifts going on behind them. Let's start off by talking about one of the most famous heroines of the Revolution, and whether she ever even existed. Every U.S. history textbook contains at least one reference to someone named Molly Pitcher. The story usually goes something like this. At the Battle of Monmouth in 1778, the heat was overwhelming, scorching, striking down almost as many men as enemy fire. The camp followers of the Continental Army rallied to bring water to the soldiers on the front lines. One of these women was married to an artilleryman and brought pitchers of water to his crew during the height of the battle. When her husband was wounded at his position, Molly Pitcher took his position at the cannon, cleaning the gun with her rammer after every shot, one shot after another helping to drive the British lines back. Some versions of this story involve a George Washington cameo where he's like, good job, lady, or a promotion to sergeant or some other little tidbit. Either way, Molly Pitcher is one of the most well-known stories of the American Revolution. Her image is almost ubiquitous with the women of the American Revolution. There are stamps and posters and rest stops in a brewery in Pennsylvania, because there's a brewery for everything now, to commemorate the legend. It's a very good story. But you think for two seconds and you realize, no one is named Molly Pitcher. That was almost certainly a nickname derived from her image of carrying a pitcher of water to the front lines. Who was the real person? What was her actual name? Will the real Molly Pitcher please stand up? There are several candidates for the Molly Pitcher story, and that's kind of my point with this section. Camp followers finding themselves in combat was not a one-off event in the Revolutionary War. After all, we've seen that camp followers were in harm's way during battles, assisted their men on the front lines, carried water, and cared for the wounded. It is not much of a stretch for them to pick up a rammer or a gun and take part in the action when things got desperate. There are many stories of women doing this kind of thing from the Revolution, and it probably happened more than there are stories of it. The Molly Pitcher story is seen as this incredible one-time thing, a singular event, when it should really be a symbol for the many times it happened. Anyway, there are two leading candidates as THE Molly Pitcher. The most commonly cited is Mary Ludwig Hayes. According to the story, Mary had joined her husband at Valley Forge, where he was part of the 4th Artillery. She was a camp follower like many others, washing clothes and caring for the sick. In July 1778, her husband's unit found itself in the Battle of Monmouth, where Mary was in the rear along with other camp followers until they needed help, when she began carrying water forward to the cannons like so many other women. At one point, William Hayes collapsed, either from the heat or from a wound, depending on the story. Mary allegedly took her place at his cannon and began to swab the barrel. At one point, a cannonball flew between her legs and tore off part of her skirt. Mary supposedly looked down, said, huh, that was close, and kept loading the gun. The problem with this story is that there's very little contemporary evidence for it. Joseph Plum Martin wrote a famous memoir of his time in Washington's army, and he definitely remembered seeing a woman servicing a cannon at the Battle of Monmouth. He even remembered seeing the cannonball tear away part of her skirt. 
But Mary Hayes herself wasn't identified with this story until much, much later, long after she had died, and there's no reference to her husband being wounded or her carrying water. In fact, there's almost nothing linking Mary Hayes to Joseph Martin's story at all. It seems to have been invented by the residents of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, looking for a hometown heroine. There was evidence that Molly Hayes was a camp follower during the Revolution, and she's buried in Carlisle, but there's nothing linking her to the Molly Pitcher story. The residents of Carlisle just looked at this like, hey, we got an American Revolutionary woman buried here. She could have been Molly Pitcher. Th there's no evidence for that. And not saying it didn't happen, but we don't know it happened. The other candidate for Molly Pitcher has much more evidence to back up her story, and her actions closely resemble the legend. They're actually more hardcore than the legend, but she wasn't at the Battle of Monmouth. In November 1776, the American post at Fort Washington came under attack by British and Hessian soldiers. An enlisted man named John Corbin was the assistant gunner to one of the fort's cannons. When the gunner was killed, John took his place, and his role as assistant gunner was filled by his wife, Margaret Corbin. Husband and wife manned the gun together until John was killed before her very eyes. Without a pause, Margaret began to load and fire the cannon single-handedly until she fell, wounded in the arm, chest, and face. Margaret Corbin never recovered the use of her left arm. She was crippled for life. This story is completely accounted. There are multiple witnesses. This, this definitely happened. Unusually, the Continental Congress agreed to gr grant M Margaret Corbin a pension for her war service, and George Washington wrote about her heroism. But Margaret Corbin's story has a tragic ending. Disabled by her war injury and traumatized by her husband's death, she slipped into obscurity. When she died in Highland Falls, New York in 1800, the locals, her neighbors, her community, didn't know anything about her war service. They just knew her as a bitter, disabled alcoholic. Woman or not, she was another veteran who couldn't leave the war behind. So... Was Mary Hayes the real Molly Pitcher? Who knows? Or was Molly Pitcher just a legend derived from Margaret Corbin's actions that later got attached to another woman who also served the guns at Monmouth a year later? Again, who knows? Molly Pitcher as a person may not have existed, but much like Rosie the Riveter, she represents the collective service of American camp followers in the War for Independence. Mary Hayes and Margaret Corbin were not the only ones. Molly Pitcher wasn't one of them. Molly Pitcher was all of them. The American Revolutionary Period saw the emergence of many great women writers and critics. Ladies like Hannah Griffiths and Mercy Otis Warren and Abigail Adams, who often made their political statements anonymously. One of the greatest literary women of the Revolution, though, was well known in her time but she was controversial then and now. She was a free black woman named Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis's birth name is lost to history since she was kidnapped in West Africa and sold into the Atlantic slave trade. Her new owners, the Wheatley family of Boston, named her Phyllis after the slave ship that brought her. But the Wheatleys discovered that their new slave was a borderline genius with a special gift for writing. Unusually for a slave owner, John Wheatley encouraged Phyllis's talents, arranging for her to learn Greek and Latin. By age 14, she was writing her own poetry, which began to find its way into the newspapers. Recognition did not come easy for Phyllis Wheatley, 
After all, women were assumed to have a lower intellectual capacity, as were black people, so she was 0 for 2 in the bigotry bracket. Lots of Americans refused to believe that a Negro woman could write such good poetry, and she was thoroughly examined by skeptical white men several times before they could be convinced that, yeah, she's the actual author. The quality of her work shone through, and in 1773 she landed a book deal. Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was the first published work of African-American poetry. Phyllis was freed by the Wheatley family after her book was published in 1773. She had already started to echo the ideals and beliefs of the revolution, but she also pointed out the uncomfortable fact that they could apply to black people too. In one poem, called On Being Brought from Africa to America, she wrote, Some view our sable race with scornful eyes, their color is a diabolic dye. Remember Christians, Negroes, black as cane, may be refined in joining the angelic train. Phyllis Wheatley wrote poems supporting the American cause, including condemnations of King George and praises of George Washington. She drew the attention of Washington himself, and he invited her to visit him at his headquarters outside Boston. These two incredible patriots met in March 1776. Some historians detect a subtle shift in Washington's views on black people and slavery, starting from his meeting with Phyllis Wheatley, when he came face to face with a brilliant black woman who, like himself, was dedicated to the cause of liberty. Washington publicly praised her work, and his support ensured its continued publication. One of the people publishing Phyllis Wheatley's poems for her was Thomas Paine. Phyllis continued to publish her works throughout the Revolution, but she died soon after the war at a very young age of 31. A shooting star if there ever was one, burning brightly, but only briefly. Phyllis Wheatley is the most famous black woman of the Revolutionary Era. But to this day, lots of black scholars have very mixed opinions on her work. Her, her poems weren't really reflective of African-American culture or the harder parts of slavery. They drew more on Christian uh, transcendentalism and the classical Greek and Latin poets that she admired. Many critics felt that she wrote in a very white voice, too mild, too passive against the reality of slavery. She received a lot of praise in her time, but it was all from white people because black people couldn't really say anything. She didn't even seem to move the needle much on the anti-slavery cause. And compared to almost every other slave in America, Phyllis Wheatley had the privilege of an educated upbringing and a permissive slave owner that allowed her to excel, which very few other black people in America did. She had an incredible talent, but she was also given a unique opportunity to express it. An extraordinary situation, if there ever was one. But it seems that Phyllis's poetry and her fame had more of an effect than people think. In 1781, a black enslaved woman named Mumbet did something very unusual. Mumbet sued for her freedom in a Massachusetts county court. Her lawyer, an early abolitionist named Theodore Sedgwick, argued that slavery was incompatible with the newly passed state constitution, which declared all men free and equal. To the everlasting shock of anyone who studies American race relations, Mumbet won. The Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that slavery was incompatible with Massachusetts' new constitution. This court, this court case effectively ended slavery in the new state of Massachusetts. 
Mumbet assumed the name Elizabeth Freeman and lived as a free woman for the rest of her life. She later said, Anytime, anytime while I was a slave, if one minute's freedom had been offered to me and I had been told that I must die at the end of that minute, I would have taken it just to stand one minute on God's earth a free woman. I would. An ordinary enslaved woman with no special talents or special privileges except the guts to challenge slavery had won the first of what are called the Freedom Suits. Within a few decades, all the northern states would ban slavery within their borders, the beginning of what's the abolitionist movement in America. Was it a coincidence that this suit took place in Massachusetts, home of Phyllis Wheatley, whose pen had shown that black people and women could stand intellectually alongside white men like George Washington? Maybe Phyllis's poetry wasn't so tame after all. Maybe it was the snowflake that started an avalanche. Massachusetts was also the home of our third unique revolutionary heroine. Deborah Sampson was a teenage orphan when the American Revolution began, a young schoolteacher and all-around handy woman making her life in the small Massachusetts town of Middleborough. She was just a lady. Like, there's nothing that unique about her to start off with. She didn't have great resources or, you know, even really parents looking out for her. But around 1780 to 1781, Deborah began to have a recurring dream. In this dream, she was attacked by an unseen figure and managed to fend him off and throw him back, defend herself. Deborah, a devout Baptist, took this as a sign from God. America was struggling for independence, and the Lord was telling her that not only was she meant to fight, she was capable of doing so. It was a discovery that women all across America had been making since the war began. They had to stand on their own, and they learned that they could. But only a few decided to do what Deborah did, decided to take up arms. Throughout the Revolutionary War, a select few American women disguised themselves as men to join the Continental Army. Most of them were discovered pretty quickly. We know of Ann Bailey and Ann Smith, who were discovered, forced to pay a fine, and then sent home. Others managed to slip in for a little bit, but when they were discovered, they were often dismissed, you know, forced to march out in disgrace to the drumbeat. However, some very few managed to conceal themselves and fight throughout the war. Anna Marie Lane dressed as a man and joined the Virginia Light Dragoons alongside her husband, who helped her conceal her identity, and the couple fought together in several battles, including Germantown and the Siege of Savannah. Both were wounded in battle, and both survived the war and settled down in Virginia afterwards. At least one woman, Sally St. Clair, was killed in action at the Siege of Savannah, her identity only being discovered after her death. So Deborah Sampson wasn't alone. She was not the only woman to disguise herself as a man to join the army. I call this pulling a Mulan, just because that's the most famous pop culture illusion. What was unique was the recognition she received. In May 1782, Deborah Sampson successfully joined the 4th Massachusetts Regiment under the assumed name Robert Shirtliff. Deborah was pretty good at passing for a soldier. She was unusually tall for a woman with a plain face, a bulky build, and a small bust. No offense, she wasn't going to be on the cover of Maxim. What made it easier was that Deborah had joined the Light Company, made up of stronger-than-average soldiers capable of quick thinking and fast movement, usually employed as scouts. 
Deborah figured that being in the light company meant that she would be less likely to be questioned and revealed as a woman. Deborah fought in several skirmishes throughout 1782 along the Hudson River. Apparently, she was an all-around pretty good soldier, performing well in several small clashes with Loyalist units. At least one of these clashes did come to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat, and she did her job and probably skewered somebody. On July 3rd, 1782, Deborah's unit found itself in a significant firefight. In this combat, the so-called Private Shirtliff was shot twice in the thigh and slashed across the head with a sword. This was a critical moment for any woman disguised as a soldier. If her wounds were treated, she might be discovered. Deborah begged her comrades to leave her to die instead of take her to the hospital. When they brought her to the hospital anyway, she allowed the doctor to treat her saber wound before she made her escape, hobbling out of the tent on her injured leg. After all, the doctor examines her thigh, he's going to have to examine something else as well, and then the game is up. Hiding behind a tree, Deborah bit down on some leather and used a knife to extract one of the two musket balls from her leg, like DIY surgery on myself behind a tree. She would limp from the wound for the rest of her life, but Deborah managed to patch herself up and rejoin her unit still incognito, presumably still with like bloody hands, like, hey guys, I'm fine, I'm fine. Later on, though, Deborah got sick, and this time a doctor named Barnabas Benny, which, that's, that's a name, Barnabas Benny, that's his actual name, discovered her secret. But he wasn't a narc, so he didn't tell. Deborah eventually wound up on the staff of General John Patterson, which was where the end of the Revolutionary War found her in September 1783. But when General Patterson handed Private Shirtliff his slash her discharge papers, he revealed that the doctor had told him of her true identity. Deborah was like, oh, oh crap. But the general just smiled, gave her some fatherly advice, and slipped her a handful of cash to get home. Deborah Sampson had served in the Continental Army for 15 months without her secret being revealed until the very end. You gotta wonder what Deborah's neighbors thought when she came home in a Continental Army uniform, a combat veteran with a wound to her name. At least one of them didn't mind. In 1785, Deborah married a farmer about her age named Benjamin Gannett. Some men like warrior women. The couple had three children and adopted a war orphan and settled down on their New England farm. But the family fell on hard times following the revolution. So in 1802, Deborah started performing a one-woman show to raise some more money for her family. It began with a sarcastic speech praising traditional gender roles, before Deborah stepped back behind the curtain, changed, and stepped back out in her army uniform. Then she would perform a complicated routine of traditional drill and ceremony. Deborah performed this show all over Massachusetts, making a little bit of money, which, you know, as, as awesome as the woman sounds, it doesn't sound like it was a really great show, and I'm, you know, after, after you watch her do, like, 13 right faces, you're probably like, okay, okay, is there going to be someone else here? But uh, she performed this show all over Massachusetts, making lots of contacts, including some guy named Paul Revere. The founder of the Sons of Liberty recognized a daughter of liberty when he saw one. When Deborah told him of her financial woes, Revere helped her appeal to Congress for something unheard of, a soldier's pension for a female combat veteran. He had to assure them that she was reformed, of course, a good wife and mother who would never dream of switching gender roles again. Just, just don't look too closely at her side hustle. 
On March 11, 1805, Deborah Sampson became the first woman in American history to earn a military pension as a soldier. Margaret Corbin had received a pension, but she hadn't received recognition as a combat veteran, even if she deserved it. Deborah Sampson did. Deborah became an icon of her community, a local heroine, until her death in 1827. In 1983, she was acknowledged as the official heroine of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. All women who have served in the armed forces and taken part in combat since the Revolution can look back at Deborah as their forebear. As I call her, the Mulan from Massachusetts. Deborah Sampson was unique as the only female soldier to gain official recognition from the U.S. government. But in a lot of ways, she was like the other women who had fought, sacrificed, and suffered in the cause of independence. Paul Revere had assured Congress that she had put aside her manly ways, and he wasn't wrong. When the war was over, she went home, settled down, and got married and had kids. Most of our heroines did the same. The spies and saboteurs, camp followers and midnight riders, poets and organizers, and even those few insane women who put on the uniform went back to their lives, and most of them did so gladly. They had stepped way, way outside their gender roles in times of trouble and turmoil, risen to the challenge of war. But when that challenge was over, they seemed to want a normal life, and who could blame them? They were content to go back to their old roles as wives and mothers. And from the outside, it looked like the revolution had changed nothing when it came to women's lives in America. Women's rights were left out of the Constitution. The old regime of domesticity, the assumed role of women as homemakers, the lack of legal independence and the prevailing assumptions about their place in the world, those were all still in place. Looking at women before and after the revolution, despite everything that happened to them and everything they did, it does look the same. At first. But once again, scratch the surface, and you'll realize that there was a subtle shift going on, a cultural turning of the tide. For one thing, the war had forced women to rely on themselves, endure hardships, make sacrifices, and make decisions. These women no longer believed the ideas of female fragility and incompetence and weakness. They had gained a level of self-confidence, of self-worth, that had just not existed before the war. You can track this in how they write about themselves, how they speak and think about themselves. Both men and women began to approach marriage less as a hierarchy and more as a partnership, a companionate marriage instead of a submissive marriage. Men began to perceive women as thinking beings with minds of their own, rather than the old days idea of the vacant vessel. Women began to feel less pressure to marry quickly, or even at all. You know, the spinsters were no longer automatically socially dead. They had more choice in what happened to their lives. The second big change was the rise of women's education. Before the revolution, women were thought too frivolous and illogical to gain anything from schooling. But no one looks at the women of the revolution and sees them being frivolous or illogical. The new post-revolutionary feminine ideal was patriotic, virtuous, and educated. Women's schools, schools for women practically non-existent before 1775, just pop up all over America right after the revolution is over. And with an education under their belt, women had the tools to gain and spread ideas, think critically, take up new beliefs, read radical literature like Mary Wollstonecraft's A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, published in 1792 in Britain, 
one of the earliest works of feminism. It was still a fringe opinion. Most American men and women thought Wollstonecraft was a nut. But you know some ladies were like, yeah, yeah, she's crazy. But... Finally, there was a shift in the perception of women's work. Before the revolution, the domestic sphere had been denigrated, relegated to the dull, simple work that only women could do. But the lead-up to the revolution and the trials of the war had many people placing the domestic sphere on a pedestal. The home was not a prison, but a shrine. Women were not men's moral inferiors and intellectual inferiors, but often seen as their superiors, the preservers and creators of civilization, who still had to be protected, but there was this entirely different cast to the way men viewed women. The rise of what some call the Victorian ideal, which seems like a step back to us, but for the women of the day, it was a step forward. Even if we don't see this as progress, the women of the time did. In 1798, Julia Sargent Murray proclaimed this to be a new era of female history, the patriotic, educated, decisive woman compared to the passive and ignorant women of the time before the revolution. Women were emerging from the clouds which have enveloped them, and the revolution of events is advancing in that half of the human species, which hitherto has been involved in the night of darkness toward the irradiating sun of science. Even if it's hard to see from the distance of the 21st century, something was beginning. At its heart was women's knowledge that the revolution could not have been won without them. In the words of one British officer, If we had destroyed all the men in North America, we should have enough to do to conquer the women. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, that was the story of women in the American Revolution. Well, some of them. I must emphasize this is not necessarily a comprehensive overview. If your favorite local revolutionary heroine from, like, some Virginia county was left out, I do apologize. This was just a broad survey, but I hope you enjoyed it. And odds are you heard about a lot of ladies you didn't already know. Before I go any farther into this conclusion, I gotta say an enormous thanks to my wife, Margaret, who does all the women's voices for the podcast and had her work cut out for her in this episode. She had a total of 17 lines, which I think is the uh, podcast high for her so far. So again, thanks so much to my wife, Margaret. I could not do this without her. Anyway, this is a pretty weird episode, I guess. A lot less narratively driven than most Unknown Soldiers podcast material. But I wasn't following a single campaign or unit or individual, so that may be why it feels different. I was really trying to capture the breadth, the variance, in the women's experience of the Revolutionary War. How it depended on all these different factors. But each woman's experience was different, and not just because of where they were, or what their skin color was, or which side their husbands chose. It was also different because of what they did. Today. We have seen both ordinary and extraordinary women deal with the challenges of revolution and war, and we've seen that they had choices, agency, decisions to make. Sometimes these were hard choices, sometimes the decisions were forced upon them, but when the challenge presented itself, most of them stepped up. 
They made the choice whether or not to boycott the king's tea or weave their own homespun. They made the choice to stand by their homes in the face of the armies or flee. To aid the rebellion by spying or carrying messages or blowing up gunpowder. Or to aid the king. Or just stay home and mind their own business. That was always an option. They could accompany their husbands to the Continental Army. Or stay home and keep the economy going in the shadow of war. To wield their pens or their pitchers in support of the cause. Or even, occasionally, take up arms. And like I said, it would be easy to focus on the few women who are regarded as extraordinary. Women like Betsy Ross or Phyllis Wheatley or Deborah Sampson. But they don't stand alone. Each of them was part of a much broader, wider group of women like them who created their own history. The ordinary women, the vast nameless masses, who carried water and spun cloth and nursed the wounded and tilled the fields and raised money and defied the invaders and kept things going. Sometimes they suffered and suffered terribly, but all the everyday ordinary choices they made to endure, resist, and carry the war effort on their backs ensured the success of the revolution. It couldn't have been done without them. Ordinary heroism is a very real thing. For any of these women, both the exceptional and the everyday heroines, it was their choices, not their circumstances, that defined them. In spite of the whole trad wife, cottage core vibe of the revolutionary era, every woman we've talked about today was important not because of what happened to her, but how she reacted to it. The women of the American Revolution were not passive observers. Like the common folks in every age, they made their own history, as individuals or as masses, but through their own choices and decisions. Millions of big and small choices every day that shaped the future of a new nation called the United States of America. And maybe you're disappointed a little bit that this story didn't end with a big girl power awakening. That American women didn't instantly gain all the rights and privileges they enjoy today, no matter how much they deserved them. That they would have to wait decades and even centuries to gain full equality in American society. A fight that many believe, as I do, that it's, it's still ongoing. Maybe you rolled your eyes a little bit when I described the cultural changes that took place after the revolution. You're like, Psh, that's it? That, that's all they got for that? But I'll just remind you, the early stirrings of the women's rights movement were underway. I mentioned Mary Wollstonecraft's book, one of the first works of feminism ever published, and how it came on the heels of the revolution. The change was coming, and it had its roots in the ideals of the Enlightenment, of liberty, equality, and democracy that the American Revolution had helped to foster, that America's women had ensured would grow. The Daughters of Liberty might not see it, but the granddaughters and great-granddaughters of liberty would. A few decades down the road, in 1848, not too far from the battlefield of Saratoga, where Friedrika Charlotte von Riedesel had heard the crying of the American camp followers as she did her own work as a camp follower. There was a place called Seneca Falls, New York, where a few women, the granddaughters of our everyday heroines from today's episode, would hold the first women's rights convention in 1848. Even as the gun smoke of the American Revolution passed into memory, another revolution began. 
Thanks for listening today. I hope you learned a whole lot, and maybe you're encouraged to read up on this a little bit yourself. If you want to do so, go ahead and check my, li- my list of sources on unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I will recommend a few books specifically for this subject. If you want more revolution-related content from me, I'm going to recommend some older episodes. Check out episode number 15, The American Quagmire, about the British side of the American Revolution. Or Unfiltered Soldiers 2, The Only Man for the Job about George Washington. Or The Short Rounds, Fire on the Rock and the Spanish Lafayette. These are all from like November, December 2021. Anyway, if you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. And just to remind you, next month, we will be having a very special edition episode. I'm going to surprise you. It's going to be a really good one. I'm super excited for it. It's a late addition to the schedule, but it's going to be lit. The title is The Chains of Command. See you on the last Monday of May, right here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>